Learning is fun. I mean, when does learning stop being fun? I just don't think it ever does. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design, how we live, the clothes we choose, and how we organize our space. I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, a certified KonMari consultant and personal stylist. I'm here to guide you on your journey to live a happy, fulfilled life. Every Tuesday, you'll get new insight on what it means to live well, plus actionable tips. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. Our guest today is lawyer Neda Jarnaz. Neda is a partner at London law firm Howard Kennedy, where her areas of expertise are banking, finance, and real estate. Neda is also a specialist in Islamic finance and a champion for diversity and inclusion in the workplace and in all aspects of life. She shows how we can all lend our support to those who need it. We talk style too. Plus, what lies at the heart of any negotiation? Any guesses? So Neda, welcome. What a pleasure. I'm delighted to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here and get some one-on-one time with you. You know, we only ever see each other in group settings really at the moment. So it's great to have a chance to have a one-on-one chat. Exactly. Yes, those group settings. So looking back on this past year with all of its upheaval and change, I'm amazed at how much my world has expanded. And that includes connecting with people all over the world from different backgrounds and and many areas of expertise. And yes, you're one of them. <laughs> and you're also the first lawyer to be a guest on my podcast. So welcome. That's awesome. I don't know how many lawyers do podcasts, but hopefully I can set a good example, inspire others. <laughs> exactly. And you're in London too. So maybe we can even meet up in person at some time. Yeah, I'm desperate to get my hands on your color swabs and do my colors. I'm a cool winter Ah, well, we'll see once we do these. Yes, exactly. A lot of people have interesting ideas about their color palette that aren't always based in reality. <laughs> have you had them done before? Or? I did have one person do my colors for me, and she gave me the kind of category, the broad category, but it wasn't a detailed assessment. I recently did order a dress, which I thought was red, but it was not really red. It was more of a coral. And because I had actually been told about the color analysis thing, I was able to recognize that, wow, my skin looks green in this. It really does make a difference. Like when you pick your colors and you wear the color that matches your complexion. Like now that I'm aware of it, it really changes your look, how you feel. Oh, well, it'll be fun to do with you. And I'm curious to see how this experience will differ since there are different systems. And it sounds like you've done the more tonal colors, which is, of course, perfectly valid and just a different approach to it. Give me all the information. That's what I love. (laughs) That's what lawyers love that. We love to have all the information so that we can decipher it and spit out what's useful to me (laughs) in this case. I think that's wonderful. Well, I look forward to that. For this one, it's the four seasons that we focus on. And actually, every color in your season does belong to you. And we'll find certain ones that particularly work for your skin tone. But I know in other systems, it changes depending on your hair and eyes. But with this one, actually, it's really about the skin tone. So you're technically the same color palette from when you're born to the rest of your life. So I I quite like that system. So it doesn't change 
winter, summer, when do you have more or less of a tan? No, no, no. So your palette is yours for life with this system. In theory, it means that like once you get your colors, really your wardrobe should be a wardrobe for life. But yeah, I don't understand why I always have to buy new clothes and new stuff. <laughs> oh, well, that's a- another topic. <laughs> we could do a whole other podcast just on style. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely have noticed that in lockdown, you know, everything has been on Zoom and Teams. And, you know, I was of the Black Brigade, Black and Navy were my staple colors. And of course, Black and Navy look absolutely terrible on video, like because I have dark hair. I'm just like one black blob. So I just so I really over the year have completely changed my wardrobe because the way of working has changed. So as long as we're on the topic of style, then how is your pandemic style been? Do you get properly dressed head to toe or are you a sort of top half up <laughs> professional look and then who knows what down below? Or? No, I I think I'm an anomaly and people think I'm weird, but I have been dressing for my day throughout. It's almost like I have to get dressed for work to get into work mode. I get fully dressed every day and then I'm ready to go out because I live in Marlebone and even in lockdown, it's a really nice neighborhood to sort of wander around in. So I personally find it saves time. You know, you get yourself ready in the morning and then you don't have to think twice when you go out. And I'm just not that person who goes out in their trackies and it just shows <laughs> that I'm old. <laughs> I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> not at all. I think it's important to embrace what feels right for you when it comes to style and all aspects of life, really. And the one thing that is different, though, is slippers, especially in the winter. You know, I wouldn't wear slippers in the office, but slippers are a big <laughs> staple for home working. But how about now? Going back, would you wear slippers in the office? You know, what is so sad was, when was it? I think back in December, I had to go into the office. And, you know, by then we had been doing this for like, more than six months. And I just had a routine, you know, I like my tea just a certain way. I have my slippers, you know, I had my snacks all on my fingertips and the office is open, but like on a limited capacity basis. So around the area, a lot of the restaurants and takeaway places were closed. And so going in, it was like, okay, I better go in and take everything that I need. So I took in my milk, I took in my, <laughs> and I did take my slippers. <laughs> and then when I got into the office and I realized I'm actually not alone, Maybe I shouldn't be. <laughs> I think at the beginning of lockdown, everyone's like, oh, I can work from home. This is amazing. So a lot of people going back into the office, one of the things they really struggle with, like with the environment, for example, is sound because at home it's a lot quieter. And, and in the office, we have open plan. It can be quite busy and bustling. And that can be quite a stress on the nervous system. It's like, okay, how do you reconfigure your working space so that your people actually can come in and, and be more productive? And I think that, you know, one of the many things the pandemic has done has really accelerated those discussions. Absolutely. And discussions around mental health as well. And I think that's an area that you have some experience in too, as a mental health first aider. So this is an internationally recognized training course that teaches you how to recognize warning signs of mental ill health and then feel confident in guiding someone to get the appropriate support. So is this something you've been doing on behalf of your office during the pandemic or do you do volunteer work elsewhere or how, how have you incorporated that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So Howard Kendi has proactively encouraged people to become mental health first aiders. 
it's only more recently, I think, that there's been more awareness and more appreciation without stigma about the importance of mental health. If someone has a cut or a wound, you can see it, you can see the injury and you can treat them. And the challenges with mental health is that it's not visible. So it's difficult to recognize the signs. And also if a person is suffering with mental health issues, whether it's depression or anxiety or you know, even eating disorder, for example, it's very difficult for them in that position to reach out for help. It's actually the fact that you're in that state of distress inhibits you from being able to ask for help as well. And so the whole idea of having mental health first aiders, so what we do is we advertise who we are around the firm. So everyone knows who across the firm is a mental health first aider. So if someone is really struggling, they can at least reach out for help. And, and it's not that I help people with mental health, but that I can be there as a signpost to help them to get help for themselves. And the more that everyone is aware of it, the more they can help self-diagnose or they can recognize those around them who might need help and be a bit kinder, or be a bit more supportive or you know, give them space. Sometimes people just need space to process things. So again, it's like another thing that has been accelerated by the pandemic. And I think that it's great that there are public figures that are speaking about it more. It takes a lot of the stigma out of it. I'm really enjoying Oprah's series on the subject. And awareness is the first step. It's not that long ago that people would just say, oh, pull yourself together or snap out of it or the worst, absolute worst advice that anyone can ever give, which is don't worry about it. Oh, OK. Thanks for telling me not to worry about it. I'll just stop worrying because that's how anxiety works, right? <laughs> Yes, but it seems like your law firm is very forward thinking and considering wellness. So I don't know if that's part of the normal workforce now, but do you feel supported? Yeah, it's huge. And we've been looking at it from multiple angles. And look, we're finding our feet. It's new territory and mental health is one facet. Diversity is another specific training aimed at women or older women or anyone who has an interest in you know, menopause and perimenopause and all those things that nobody talks about. But for the individual who's going through it, it's something big going on in their life. So why should we not understand what is happening so that we can actually be better colleagues or better prepared for what's coming down the line, right? Because if you think about your work life is your life, you spend 80% of your life in your work. So if it can be more integrative and synergistic with what's actually happening in your outside life, it's going to make that experience better for everybody. And I think there's a lot of debate about, I'm going to put the air quotes here, but like work-life balance. Why is it work-life balance? Because yes. work is life. So it's just really about how you make sure that you have a balance across the board and making sure that you have a work environment that is understanding and reflective of the things that you're going through in your day to day. And I have a lot of entrepreneurial clients and, and for those that work from home, they're really well versed with working from home and the home office and boundaries. I think they've been watching everybody else who normally works in an office transitioning to the work from home and, and going, oh, yeah, I made that mistake when I started. Oh, yeah, that's quite normal. You'll do this to fix that, you know, and it's like, oh, why don't we ask those guys <laughs> to tell us? <laughs> I know you don't always have to start right from the beginning, do you? Learn from experts, whatever you're doing. Yeah, exactly. It's major shortcut. <laughs> That's definitely, we'll put that on the hot list of tips in life, is take a shortcut and ask someone who's done it before. <laughs> exactly. I know, it took me years to realize that. <laughs> and do you think if working remotely is the future for many of us, do you think that this will naturally lead to a more diverse inclusive workforce when we're less limited by location? 
We have noticed that people are coming back into the office more because they miss the connection. And I think the prediction is that we're probably not going to go back to a five-day week in the office. And a lot of offices are configuring themselves so you can't actually come back five days. But that people will want in-person connection, say, two or three days a week or on a rotation system because you need a bit of both. And it may help diversity because if you feel more comfortable at home than the office or vice versa, then it helps to just balance things out because nothing is perfect all the time. We all have good days and we all have bad days. We all have tasks that we really love doing and we all have tasks that we really hate doing. And then there's people that we get on well with and there's people that we don't get on well with. But the key is balancing it out so that you're not getting more of the stuff that you dislike than you can handle. Almost like microdosing, right? That may help to create more a diverse and inclusive environment. But on its own, I would say it's probably not enough. You still need the education. You still need the conscious collaboration and you know, active participation in initiatives to make sure that everyone is invested in the outcome of having a diverse environment. Because there are still plenty of people that really don't care. There are plenty of people that think, what's the big deal? If you've never felt in a minority, that would be a normal perspective. And there was an event that I went to a couple of years ago. It was designed specifically to flip the ratios where 30% of the room were men and 70% were women. And the interesting thing for the men was this does feel different. You know, a lot of them obviously really enjoyed it, but there was they definitely <laughs> noticed a difference. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, if you notice a difference, then that starts to open the conversation of why it matters, because it shouldn't feel different. Right. Yeah. And along the lines of feeling different, I'm originally from Los Angeles, but have lived in London for 18 years. And particularly when I was first here, I was mistaken for coming from so many places. People have asked if I'm Canadian, American, Scottish, from the West Country, Scandinavian, even German. And I remember someone saying very confidently, oh, where in Ireland are you from? <laughs> oh, yeah. Which, yes. Oh, my gosh. I get where in America are you from? Because I actually went to an American school in London and I grew up in London and London is so international. And obviously, like my parents are, I guess you'd call them immigrants. We don't call ourselves immigrants, but that's the cultural label. <laughs> I mean, we moved here when I was two. So they were obviously adults. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and so because I went to an American school, it was actually an international school. So it was a mix of Americans and lots of other cultures and nationalities. I think finally, when I was around 16, we had one English guy enroll in one of our classes. And he was like my first English friend. And he was exotic, right? Because he was the only English person oh, <laughs> in the entire yes. school. <laughs> and, and even the teachers, I think, were quite multicultural. Like my English teacher was Maltese and my physics teacher was Pakistani. And a lot of them were American as well. And then another one came along and it was like, oh, wow, we've got two English people in school. And their accents were so <laughs> cool. And, and they went there because they wanted to go to the U.S. to college and they needed a high school diploma. And so like they couldn't... Oh. It wasn't useful for them to do A-levels, whereas on the flip side, you couldn't get into university here with just a high school diploma. You had to do the baccalaureate, oh. which is what I did. So I guess it forces you to be more well-rounded as a person, which at that age, it's a logical thing. I think it's a, it's a logical way of setting up an education structure. 
I think it has a lot going for it. And then exposing you to a more international group of students and different cultures, languages, I think that would help everyone, wouldn't it? Exactly. I never realized until I was really in the thick of it, having that international background was so valuable when doing cross-border deals or any cross-border communication because people from different countries, people from different backgrounds communicate in slightly different ways. For example, when you talk to, you know, continental Europeans, they tend to speak in the present tense. So when someone learns English as a foreign language, the first iteration they learn is everything in the present tense. You can actually speak English in the present tense and convey the same meaning it's not as conversational, but it conveys the same meaning and the listener is able to understand you more clearly. So I, I would notice that if I'm speaking to someone who has English as a second language, do those kind of things. And I would notice that things would flow more smoothly for me than they would for others. That's like a nice byproduct. I really appreciate that. And then you start to think, well, what else am I getting? Well, I guess when I travel because I'm more quick to sort of immerse myself in local culture, I get more access. I get to see more behind the scenes of what those cultures are. And then I guess you just cultivate an interest in lots of different cultures as well, because I grew up with it and it's fun. I mean, let's face it, it's really fun. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so, yeah, so definitely the multicultural diversity has been a really fun byproduct of my upbringing even though it had its challenges, especially because my complexion, it, it's not easy to label. And people love to label because it's a thing that makes them feel safe. And I noticed that in Europe, people would think that I was Italian or Spanish. If I was in the US, they would think that I was like Venezuelan or something. And if I was in Asia, they would think I was Indian. So it was quite interesting. And if they were Australian, they would guess that I was Maori. And the only people that really guessed that I was Arab was Arabs. Like an Arab knows an Arab. It's just you recognize yeah. your own, right? <laughs> and then with the accent, throwing in the mixed accent. And it's interesting, like people do really judge you by your appearances. Like, it's nothing personal. It's just the first piece of information that they get. Our brains are wired to take shortcuts. And so we look for patterns. We look for something that we've seen before so that we can put a label on it. And that just helps our brain to file it in a place that we know that's safe. We understand that, right? And so I come in and they're like, okay, she sounds American, but she also sounds a bit British. And she, <laughs> I don't know where she was from by her looks. And there was definitely a period in my life where that was always a question, like, where are you from? And now I think people are just used to, you know, the benefits of the internet is that, it's particularly in lockdown, is that you literally have the world at your fingertips, you know? So where you're from doesn't matter so much. Well, I mean, obviously it matters, but it's not so like, oh, that's so exotic. <laughs> it's like, no, it's just... Who I am. <laughs> and do you enjoy being a bit of a chameleon where you can kind of blend in and get people to, to ask you about where you're from? Or does it get tedious to sort of explain yourself? Or how do you feel about that? I don't mind it, but I do pay attention to the questions that are asked because I think if the first question is, where in America are you from? I think, right. wow, okay, yeah. we're starting from a very low baseline. Okay, let's, yeah. let's, <laughs> let's cleanse the palate, right? <laughs> That's true. Sometimes it's quite fun to say guess and then see what they guess because it starts to tell you a little bit about their personality, where they've been in the world, where they might have had encounters. I think the one that is tired is, you know, because my name, it's Neda or Nada for the English and it's an Arabic word and it means morning dew. But obviously in Spanish, it means nothing. 
And I've been speaking Spanish since I was probably like seven years old. We've been going to Spain, you know, since that age for our holidays. And I studied in school. And so for many years, I have known that nada means nothing in Spanish. <laughs> but people meet you for the first time and you tell them your name and they're like, oh, my God, did you know that means nothing in Spanish? <laughs> and it's sweet because it's like, OK, i so you're the first person they've met with that name. But like now there are more people with my name who've like written books or are in the media. And I think, you know, probably Nadia became more popular before that. And so sometimes people will call me Nadia. And that's also a pet peeve because that's not my name. <laughs> but... <laughs> if people are curious, it's nice. It's nice because it's an opportunity to sort of show them a different upbringing. And they often ask because they're interested. So I think being curious is always a good thing. And it's when you close off that opportunity for conversation and communication that things get more challenging. What I'd probably like less is when people are like, they're looking at you and they're just like trying to work you out, but they don't ask. And you're like, just ask. Yes, <laughs> it's fine. It's <laughs> <laughs> a safe place. <laughs> Imagine if you live the life you really want, you know, your dream life. Have you ever taken time to picture what it would look like? I mean, what it would really look like? We're not talking about the life you feel you should have, but deep down, the life you secretly want, your ideal life. Maybe you already have a vision. You wake up after a good night's sleep on the most comfortable mattress ever, with pillows that support your head just the way you like. You go to your organized closet and choose colorful, unique clothes that fit you and make you feel good. Then pad through a clean, warm, uncluttered home to the kitchen. Your refrigerator offers up the most delicious, healthy options for breakfast. And you have a day of unstructured time stretching ahead of you to do with as you like. But that's never going to happen, right? Wouldn't it be nice to take a step back, sweep aside all your worries, and imagine that's where I come in? I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, and I've developed an exclusive questionnaire for the Also in Pink community to help you create a vision of your ideal life. Simply join the Also in Pink email list and you'll get instant access to our Ideal Lifestyle Vision questionnaire. Go on then. Make a cup of your favorite tea or whatever floats your boat. Go to alsoinpink.com and click start now. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. In the real estate world, there's a huge amount of change going on in say how we use the high street, right? Like retail has moved online, e-commerce has taken over, Every day there's a new vacant space appearing and what was there before is obsolete, but you still have the building there. And we now have an opportunity to reconfigure the landscape. So what are we going to do? Okay, if you started from zero, what would you create that actually is sustainable? And so things that are being looked at is like, okay, well, we know that we're going to move into more sustainable energy sources the goal is to go to net zero by 2050, which is not a lot of time at all. And and not only is 2050 the long stop, a lot of people are aiming for 2030, which is really, really very close. So 
in my world, which is real estate finance, it's fun acting for the people who are really at the inception phase of these projects because they're building new sites and different types of assets. There's a cost of capital with funding a lot of these things. And the way government initiatives are sitting behind this is that your cost of capital, because you have to keep capital reserves when you lend out money, your cost of capital is going to be higher if you're not hitting these milestones. So if you want to reduce your cost of capital, then you've got to be meeting certain energy milestones and all these different things. And if you do that, then you reduce your cost and then that cost gets ultimately passed on to your end user. And so that motivates them. In the short term, it feels hard because it's new. It feels hard because it feels expensive. And you and I both know this. In the case of like the things that we buy, it's like, oh, well, I could buy this really cheap one that might break in a year or I could buy this expensive one, but I know it's going to last me at least five years, but it's expensive, right? And so the conversation is over those five years, it's actually cheaper. So it's changing your perspective and going, this is cheaper for you in the long term and it's better for everyone and it hits all these milestones. It's a bit of a playground right now, seeing all these things coming into play, seeing different businesses having different emphasis. And ultimately, if you don't get on board, you're going to be left out because you're going to find difficulties in getting access to funding. You're going to find difficulties in getting access to investors. You're going to find difficulty in getting consumers to buy into your products because you can see now that the end consumer has realized that they do have an influence. They can vote with their feet. They can vote with their their dollars, right? Like, I don't have to buy from you. And this was actually something that really powerfully came out of the Black Lives Matter movement is there was a big, like, finally, Sean, on businesses run by minorities. People were like, well, if I have a choice between spending my money here and here, then and I spend it here instead of where I normally spend it, then I can shift the direction of the attention. And so everybody has a part to play. And so if you don't get on board, your long-term business success is at risk because you will go quickly from being the majority to the minority. And then your access to a lot of things is diminished. And that's the hope, but I am genuinely seeing that hope turn into sort of reality. It really is everyone working together, as you say, to to make that change in the end and having the consumer, your average person saying, no, I'm not going to go for this cheaper alternative. I'll invest in a quality piece that is good for me longer term and good for the environment. And the pandemic has really shown us how we can make big changes when we have to. We can adapt quickly. So it will be interesting to see if that pushes more change in terms of sustainability. And I mean, this is a big year, isn't it, with the UN Climate Change Conference coming up and a lot of goals being set then. And that was delayed by the pandemic, wasn't it? It was supposed to happen last year. So I'll I'll be curious to see if that's a positive thing and that people will now think, okay, maybe we can do this faster. Yeah, I think this year has created momentum that was previously not there. And it's exactly what you said is that what this year has done is proven that it can be done. They measured outputs over this time and pollution was down, like majorly down. And we have still survived. We're not necessarily thrived because social mental well-being hasn't necessarily been at its pinnacle. (laughs) And so now we've got to reverse back and make sure that the human side of it is also taken care of as well. That's an important aspect because it's not sustainable. What we've done this last year is not sustainable. 
So it needs to be better. But yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of momentum this year. We will have a much better COP26 this year because of what has been achieved this year. It'll And it has the potential to catapult into a much, much quicker progress. And certainly in the UK, everyone's is excited about it. Every business is reconfiguring. It's a great opportunity to shine a spotlight on what we're doing. Everyone's getting on board and nothing creates movement like collective action. Very true. And that's a nice segue, actually. It's officially Pride Month now. Yes, I've been loving seeing all of the rainbows come out. And we're used to rainbows, particularly because of the pandemic and supporting the NHS here in the UK. That's been a kind of symbol of it. So yeah, Pride this year is, of course, Pride as in LGBTQ+, but maybe there's a little bit of a sort of pandemic (laughs) rainbow (laughs) to that as well, a double rainbow. Totally, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and Neda, you're a champion for the LGBTQ plus community. So how do you show up and get involved? I mean, like a lot of firms, I guess, we have an active campaign during Pride Month to raise awareness and, and shine a spotlight on LGBTQ plus issues. And again, as part of creating an environment of inclusivity and it's a learning curve. It's really interesting for me to educate myself. And I think that the key to all these conversations is Do you feel permission to be yourself? Is it safe for you to be yourself? We have a a mutual friend, a contact, who proudly has her rainbow flag in the background of her Zooms all the time. And one of the saddest moments for me in our friendship was that she had a client meeting where she didn't feel safe having her rainbow flag in the background because she knew that the client on the other side was not progressive in their thinking. And so she had to take it down. I really felt for her because that is a situation where you don't feel safe being yourself and you don't feel you have a choice because that's your job, that's your livelihood. You can't just quit your job for your freedom of speech. It's like we live in the real world. You have to do both until we're in a place where you can hang your flag with pride and not feel shamed and not feel diminished, not feel disadvantaged. Until we're in that place, we still have work to do to educate people. And I'm also educating myself. Relatively recently, a friend of mine explained that they were non-binary. And because we're friends, I was able to have a conversation with them about what that means for them, their experience of being non-binary. A different non-binary person has a completely different experience because the spectrum is extremely diverse within itself. That's why the plus is important in the LGBTQ plus, right? And so it forced me to educate myself and go, oh, I I never thought about gender in that way. We think of it as the gender that you're born with, you're male or you're female. That's your external world, but there's also your internal world. And how do you feel on the inside? Internally, do you feel like a man or do you feel like a woman? Or do you feel like something else? Because there's some people who don't feel that they're one or the other. You might be born male, but feel like a woman internally, you might want to be referred to as she. Or if you feel like you're non-binary, you want to be referred to as them. It was a real eye-opener for me to just learn about that and, and just feel so privileged to have the opportunity to learn about that. For an experience that people have probably been having for centuries, but not felt safe to talk about it. And look at us now, we're finally in a world where we can actually talk about it because then it affects my behavior and the way I respond and the way I can lead. 
you know, law firms would always have to like submit entries for certain ranking directories and things like that. A few years ago, we started the conversation about pay gaps and equality of pay. And so there's a lot of stats being collected. And, and the pay gap conversation was really focused on gender, right? So they started collecting stats on how many men and how many women do you have at different levels. And the forms go, how many people of X religion or Y religion do you have? And how many people who you would categorize as LGBTQ plus, a bit of a mouthful, do you have yeah. you know, in your organization? <laughs> but what was interesting is that they had all these boxes, right, to collect the data, to collect the stats. But in the gender box, it still says how many of your employees are men and how many are women. And it's like, well, how the hell should I know? Because that's not a complete question. Although we're still moving in the right direction, these like tiny things show that there's still work to be done. I try to be an advocate in as, as so much as I have knowledge and awareness, but I also take responsibility that I also have a lot to learn. But the main responsibility that I take is knowing what I know and what I don't know and trying to create an inclusive environment within what is my gift and my power. And that goes to the language that I use, how I speak to people, correcting others who address people incorrectly. And I think that's something that we could all do. If you know that someone likes to be addressed in a specific way, or you know that a certain behavior is acceptable or not acceptable, that person who is a subject of that isn't always in a position to say, actually, I prefer this, or actually, you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> like, actually, what you just said is offensive. That person who is the subject of that is not always in an empowered position. And if you are in a position where you are better placed to be the advocate, then why not be the advocate for the other person, you know? Like we don't only have to advocate for ourselves, we all are in a position to advocate for others. And it's really the freedom that comes from stepping out of the shadows. The shadows feel safe in a way, it's safe to hide, it's safe because no one can attack you, but you're also not able to be yourself. And that's not a full life. If you don't have the freedom to be yourself, that's not a full life and that's not fair. It should be a human right to be able to live a full life, right? And so creating the safety in the light and allowing people to step out of the shadow into the light is really the thing that is going to move the needle. And that applies in so many ways. Like even I was thinking quite recently about the, you know, there was like some quite big, bad headlines about these American investment banks who had employees that were just working crazy hours and, and were all reaching the point of burnout. It's a known cultural attribute of working in an investment bank that it's going to be cutthroat. It's going to be really hard work. But the moment it came out into the light and it was publicly acknowledged that it was not acceptable, it was that moment that the organization was like, oh, oh yeah, actually, no, we can't do this. Let's change our behavior, right? So the conversations and everyone having the conversation and acknowledging and agreeing what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, it's a really important part of all inclusion initiatives. It's the same protocols for all, race, orientation, if you want to call it that, orientation is really just one strand of, of the pride movement. Ethnicity, religion, gender, all of them there. It's the same thing across the board. So yeah, I'm an advocate and a champion for it, but I acknowledge that I'm also myself learning and open to be taught. And that's the fun thing as well, is that learning is fun. I mean, when does learning stop being fun? I just don't think it ever does. <laughs> Learning is fun. I completely agree. And that's it, isn't it? Creating that inclusive environment and not being afraid to ask questions if you do it from the right place as well of curiosity and wanting to 
create this more inclusive world. And yes, and even if we don't personally identify as being LGBTQ+, or if we aren't ourselves affected by issues around the Black Lives Matter movement, I think it's important for all of us to be those champions and to get involved and support the people around you. And as you say, living a full life is uh, the key, really, <laughs> for all of us. What would be really beautiful is if we educated ourselves because we wanted to. And it's interesting. Starting from zero again. You're starting from zero, exactly, yeah. Creating the world we want to live in. Yeah, and it seems like being a good negotiator is a fundamental life skill that we'd all benefit from developing. So in family relationships, in business, whether you're trying to get a raise, whatever it is. So what advice can you give? How can you learn to be a better negotiator? Yeah, obviously, lawyers are trained to be good negotiators. Yes. <laughs> We're professional. <laughs> we hope so, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many different styles of negotiation, but I ultimately think when you're looking at any negotiation, it's important to always keep your eye on the price, right? You've got to think about what is in it for you and what is in it for the other person. And how can you find the meeting point where the thing that you're trying to achieve is aligned with the thing that they're trying to achieve? Keeping that always in focus helps you to identify things that are not important to you that are really important to the other person which you can concede in exchange for something that's important to you that's not important to them right so in a funny way having empathy and awareness is a really powerful skill for negotiation because you can put yourself in their shoes and sometimes you don't need to negotiate sometimes like the deal on the table is the right deal and you don't have to feel bad about that you don't have to fight and scrap you know, I don't know about you, but like sometimes you meet people who are really scrappy and they just love a good fight. Yes, I know. That's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> it's exhausting because you're like, why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> so I think a good negotiation is devoid of ego because sometimes the worst deals come out of those deals that were negotiated out of ego because I want to prove that I'm bigger than you rather than actually getting the thing that I need to drive my business forward, right? And I think we can think of pretty obvious examples of that in the political world. (laughs) 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 And I say that so flippantly, but that's not a simple thing. Ego is a very complicated construct. And also understanding ego and understanding how people's egos might be affected by how you negotiate can also be really useful to help temper and keep negotiations on even level. There are exceptions, of course. There are some cultures where every single point will be negotiated and argued for to the point where you have no idea which one was important to them and which one wasn't. (laughs) And those are particularly exhausting. At the end of the day, you're not looking to be adversarial. Often the people you're negotiating with are the people that you're going to have long-term relationships with. So Do you really want to fall out with them on day one? It's not a good look. You always have to remember in negotiations as well that people are watching you. They're watching how you behave because not every business venture goes to plan. It's kind of like a marriage, right? And I'm kind of watching you to see how you're going to behave if things do get rocky and difficult. And I'm deciding before I get into bed with you if you're the kind of person that I want to be running this venture with. And so your negotiation style is always communicating something about you. And if you're on the other side of that, I would say, 
pay attention to how your counterpart is negotiating because they might be telling you, they might be signaling to you how they will behave further down the line in a venture. And you've got to decide for yourself, is this the right fit for me? The most expensive commodity is time. Time is the one thing that you cannot get back. It's the one thing that if you save it, you're actually multiplying your revenue, (laughs) extra dollars versus time. When you're in your zone of genius and your business is flying and you're really in a position of growth, time is a thing that you don't want to be wasting. It's a thing that you want to save. And so in any negotiation, really concentrate on your objectives, the long-term play, and what really is going to move the needle on you achieving your, your business goals. Keep your ego in check. Check your counterpart's ego. And, and it's quite interesting, like uh, you're talking about family. What I noticed about working mothers, working mothers, particularly with young children, they really become exceptional negotiators because they learn to negotiate with the most difficult counterpart of all, right? <laughs> Because they start to get really creative because a child's logic is so straight. And they start to think, well, what could I offer that's going to be worth it for them? You really force yourself to get into that child's mind. I should say working parents because fathers will have the same, right? And yeah, so it, it forces a creativity and negotiation that wasn't necessarily there before. You didn't have to do it. So you didn't necessarily practice that skill. I think parenting offers a level of practice in negotiation skills that should not be underestimated in value in the corporate world. Sometimes when there's discomfort with women going on maternity leave and the the inconvenience of the business, and yes, there's legislation to force businesses to give maternity cover. I mean, what you get back is exponentially improved to what, you know, (laughs) because of all these extra things, you know, that's my personal view. And again, it's like a short-term investment, for long-term gain, which is for me on the bounds of economics is a no-brainer, but often is not looked at like that by businesses, which I find confusing. They honestly come back to work and it's child's play. You're getting someone who's more efficient, more skilled in so many ways, and the investment relative to that is, is quite small. So yeah, it's fun because there's a lot of psychology in negotiation. And psychology is fascinating. That's why I find myself being interested in everything from marketing to branding. Yeah, I love that concept of negotiation. That's really eye-opening. And to think that empathy is at the heart of it, which is, I mean, really at the heart of pretty much everything in life, (laughs) of the conversations (laughs) we've had. It's that, isn't it? Checking your ego and being open to what happens and then having a better understanding of who you're talking to as well. It's great. I love that. And do you have a daily habit or ritual that brings you joy? Oh, yeah. I honestly think that first cup of tea or coffee in the morning, it's the ritual that always stays with me. And actually the ritual is, I think to myself, do I need tea or do I need coffee today? Checking in with how I'm feeling, yeah, top to toe, because <laughs> they they have different energies and they have different vibes and they make me feel a different way. So I'm like, what do I need? And so for a very long time in lockdown, I was a coffee person, and I would say in the last month, I've gone back to being a tea person. So it goes to show that checking in just change your decisions and it does change <laughs> your state. <laughs> Yes, your mini morning negotiation, checking in. It is my first negotiation of the day. (laughs) How very appropriate. I like that. (laughs) And here's something quite fundamental to also in pink, I would say. Neda, do you have a vision for what your ideal life looks like? 
I'm living a pretty good version of it. I think that in an ideal life, I would have probably a bit more space and an outside garden. I love to travel and obviously we're not able to do that. So I'm looking forward to getting the freedoms back to travel more and explore more places. I'm lucky, I think, you know, I've traveled a fair amount and London is one of the greatest cities. I know there are people who disagree or they find the hustle and bustle too much, but I think London is one of the greatest cities, really. And so I'm living a very good version of an ideal life here. And I appreciate it's the privilege of being able to afford a lot of the advantages that London offers. The restaurant scene is amazing. The entertainment scene, the theater scene, all the stuff, the culture, the museums, the galleries, those are all things that tick my boxes. I know people who are not interested in that. I get that. It's not for everybody, but for me, the multiculturalism and the depth of cultures, regardless of your views on whether they're appropriated correctly and whether <laughs> which we should do to, to correct that. <laughs> Having access to that at your fingertips, there is nothing like it. And so I think... There's obviously always improvements to be made and I'm always working on myself. I'm trying to stay fit and healthy and getting time to move and be more active. Those are all things that I always strive to build in more to my life. But yeah, I think life is good. I'm very lucky. Oh, that's wonderful. And I can certainly relate to that. London is my place too. I feel like this is my home and it's so funny how quickly that can happen. I think within my first year of living here, I knew that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And I, I always find it interesting when you've lived in different places, the tipping point is when you've lived more years in your current abode than in your previous country. And so then it really starts to play with your identity of like, are you American or are you English now? Because you've lived here longer than you've lived there, for example. I don't know if you're there yet. I don't know if you've hit the tipping point. Yeah. It's so funny because I do feel most comfortable here and amongst people from all sorts of cultures. But I would still call myself American, although... I think this was quite telling when we had the London Olympics in 2012, I was full on Team GB. <laughs> so, yeah. So who do you support in the Olympics? That tells you something, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, the concept of home is something you could do a whole podcast series on, I think, and what makes something home for you. But yes, London is it. As I look out the window here and see the clouds and trees and little rooftops, yeah, it's definitely home. <laughs> and it's so funny, like I recently did a, a sort of brief seminar for some German MBA students and they normally come over here to the UK and they literally go around the buildings and just get a feel for the city. But because of COVID, of course, it's all been done remotely. And so, so when I was doing my little section of the webinar, I put up some slides and gave them some little tidbits that you need to know about English culture. And, you know, I put in a picture of the queen because, you know, <laughs> we cherish the queen. And, and I said, you must always ask us about the weather because the weather is very important to us because it's always so variable. I mean, the, nowhere like England, you get four seasons in one day the way we do. I mean, how often do you go out with layers, a layers, an umbrella, <laughs> sunglasses, <laughs> gloves? <laughs> You just have to be prepared for everything and you, you have to check the weather before you go out because none of this California sort of sameness, like it's, <laughs> it's so variable here. 
It is. And they laugh because it gets true. The English always talk about the weather. I'm like, this is why. The weather and your health. I think there's a line in Jane Austen somewhere about that. <laughs> yeah, your health. And nothing has shown like this year that health is wealth, right? Very true. Yes, we are all equal in many more ways than perhaps we thought. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. <laughs> what are you most looking forward to this year? Honestly, I'm just taking it one day at a time. Because normally we look forward to holidays and I haven't booked any and I don't really want to get into the wormhole of like, will they, won't they put it on the green list? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, will my flights get cancelled and da 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 da. And actually, I take my citizenial, I don't know the word, responsibility seriously in that, you know, we yeah. have are going through a global pandemic and people have suffered and we all have to do our part and I'm managing just fine. And so it will be something like the Van Gogh Live next weekend. And that's <laughs> as far as my timeline goes. Although I have to say that we are seeing more in-person events, like bigger in-person events being penciled in for September, October, November. And I'm hopeful and optimistic that those will go ahead. And if they do, I do look forward to them. But I, I'm keeping myself on an even level to not get too excited. Because the bigger the excitement, the bigger the disappointment, right? Yeah. So I just try and keep it even and don't get too excited about things that may not happen. So I keep it simple and look forward to things from week to week. So meeting up with friends, new experiences, trying out new places. Those are the things and the safe list to get excited about. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think there's lots on the safe list to get excited about. And then, yes, I think that idea of social responsibility is very important. We're all in this together and need to work together to get through it and be able to live well in every sense of the word. So now we've come to the finale. I have a few quick fire questions for you to end the show. I'll try and be quick, but you know, I'm not quick with my replies, but I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> That's what editing's for anyway. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so what's your most treasured possession? And of course, no judgment. So I would say my most treasured possession is my kettle. Oh. The moment. <laughs> because, you know, when we were in the office, my kettle was neglected. I invested in a better quality kettle that you can you know, boil water at different temperatures because when you're drinking herbal teas, they shouldn't really be stewed in boiling water. They should be stewed in slightly cooler water. So it's a kettle that shows the temperature. It's so great. You know, when you make a cup of tea or coffee and it's just a bit too hot and you have to leave it to cool for a little bit. And with this one, like I don't, I just, I boil it at exactly the right temperature, my drinkable temperature. So oh. it has been one of the best things. <laughs> I would say lockdown and treasured possessions has really changed my perspective. I don't know what my answer would have been before. That's <gasps> fascinating, isn't it? And what's your favorite article of clothing or accessory in your current wardrobe? I actually have a new dress oh. and, and it's like a lovely burgundy color. It just fits really well, but it's also stretchy. So it's really comfortable. I somehow found the perfect dress for summer that's flattering and the right color for me. And people are like, oh, wow, I love that dress. You know, <laughs> it is my current favorite article of clothing because we're still in the honeymoon period. <laughs> I've just received it and I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yes. Well, if it's a true favorite, I'm sure you'll last through that into many years of partnership. 
I hope so, but I do remember I, I definitely had a, a investment handbag phase, and every investment handbag I bought was like, this is the last bag. I love this bag so much. This is the last bag I'm ever gonna buy. And then, you know, we have a good year together, and it's like, you know, maybe it's time for change. <laughs> you can never predict how you're gonna feel about something in the future. And it's also okay to change how you feel. And I also think that we are, as humans, we are entitled to feel differently about things over time and change our minds about things over time. But people do sometimes hold you to a word like, but you said, especially kids, but you <laughs> yeah. said, like, yeah, but changing your mind is a human right. So give me a break. <laughs> and where do you go to get inspired? This is maybe a Marlebone thing and, and maybe a me thing, but the best place for me right now in lockdown to get inspired, and especially now that it's opened, is Selfridges. Because Selfridges oh. department store, for the times they've been open in lockdown, they have just been so great. Every day they change something up. Like there's always something new in the store. They've always done something different. It's like a different kind of museum. It's full of beautiful things. <laughs> and so much variety. So many different cultures and nationalities represented. And the staff there are also so delightful, like it's the best customer service. And it's walking distance for me. And the building itself is is a bit mazy, so you can really kind of go and explore. I would like to be a complete person, say I go to the park. The park is also nice, but the truth <laughs> is I don't like going for a walk on the park when it's raining. So Selford is a much more reliable safe haven. <laughs> oh, for all seasons, all times of year. For all seasons, yeah. It's always room temperature. It's great. Oh, amazing. Wow. You make me want to go too. <laughs> you should definitely go. <laughs> Date in Selfridges. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what's one book or resource that you'd recommend for everyone? I mean, I don't know if it's for everyone, but The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. I always go back to that book and feel resonance. There's a story about going on a journey, but also about serendipity and things happening for a reason. It's a quick read. It's not a long book. It's also a story about reminding you to connect with yourself. And I have it on my shelf. I haven't read it for a while. It's one of those books that I would like to reread. You go through a journey of emotions reading it. So yeah, I will put that in the staple library if you haven't read it. Sounds good. And here's a very KonMari question for you. What would you say that you're grateful for? I really am grateful for the diversity in my life and the things that I've learned as a result of that. The cultural background, environment, travel, people, you know, I've worked with so many different types of people. And every time I learn something new, I learn it from someone else and, and it makes me feel more whole. This last year in particular, I think what I've really learned, there are different ways of doing things and seeing and learning and understanding that and seeing how other people do things differently and then being able to flex my style to be more compatible with how they like to receive things. And that all goes to that same sort of feeling of diversity. And it's, it's kind of an eclectic world that we live in, really. It's so multidimensional and it's so much fun. And I just could not imagine what life would be without all of that. That would be what I'm grateful for. It's a big one. It's pretty all-encompassing, but... <laughs> I think it's great. No, the diverse fabric of life. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. A wonderful thing. And, Netta, finally, what do you love most about life? The food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Isn't food so good? Oh, my gosh. Like, you think you've tried everything, and then you go to a new place, and you're like, wow, 
Like, how did they think of this? <laughs> oh, food is I'm so good. I'm not much of a cook. It's so good. I mean, I'm not much of a cook, but like, feed me and I'm grateful. It's just so good. <laughs> it's obviously a human need, but it's not like, you, you could live on really bland food, but there's absolutely no need to live a small life like that. Oh. Like, go out and explore all the flavors because... Wow. <laughs> yes, I want all the flavors. Food is absolutely glorious. <laughs> I can relate yeah. to that one. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, Neda, it has been such an immense pleasure chatting with you about all these wonderful things, creating an inclusive environment, diversity and food and living a full life. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun talking to you and just always so great to go deep in topics that we otherwise might not have the chance to do. And thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Oh, my absolute pleasure. I know. I could chat for hours. Literally, I'd be delighted to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think when we meet in person, we definitely have to carve out a big chunk of time. <laughs> yeah. At least half a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that chat with lawyer Neda Jarnaz. So, here's some key takeaways from our conversation. We can all be champions, whether it's shining a spotlight on LGBTQ issues or the Black Lives Matter movement, we are all in a position to advocate for others. And empathy is the key to everything, even when it comes to negotiations. Also in negotiations, check your ego, Really concentrate on your goals and remember the most expensive commodity is time. So be sure to value yours. And you too can train to be a mental health first aider. Check out the link in the show notes. Also, if you want to see some pink and rainbow perfection, check out Neda's statement dress and handbag in honor of pride. There's a fab photo in the extended show notes on alsoinpink.com. We can all be colorful and fabulous. And learning is fun. So get out there, get curious, ask questions and learn. That's our show then. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Alexandria and this is Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to Also in Pink wherever you get your podcasts. And the absolute best way to show your support is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. This really helps more than anything to promote the show. And of course, tell all your friends. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, have a wonderful week. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life.